Good morning. It's great to be together and to open the scriptures together. I'm back in 1 John, and we're going to do well, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Let me read the text. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May we understand the concepts in this passage. May we understand the dangers of the lusts that are in the world. And may we be so changed by your grace that we indeed live for your word and will. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very familiar passage of scripture to me. And I have to say, it's interesting for me to teach this 25, 30, 40 years later. Because in the 70s and early 80s, I did a seminar based on this section. And I did it up at camp. I did it here. I did it for training phone ministers. And I went over it again and again and again. The seminar was called Basic Root Problems. I have a little better understanding of hermeneutics now than I did then, but I think we still have the basic same issues. That there's temptation in the world, that the world system is opposed to the things of God, and that if we're going to live for the will of God, we're going to live in a way that's going against the grain of everything and everyone around us for the most part. And I don't think the temptations have changed. So, uh, as I said, this is very interesting. I can't tell you how many dozens of times I preached on this verse, but not for at least 30 years. <laughs> so this will be new to do it in this decade. It says in the first part of 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And this is an imperative. I make it a practice to always identify all of the imperatives that we find when we're preaching through and basing this, the, my study on the Greek. And it has the may and then the imperative. So it would just warn us that this is how people are. They love the world, but we're not to. Don't love the world, imperative, exclamation point. The word world is cosmos. It's a very common word, and it has a range of meaning. I will show you a slide later that explains the range of meaning, and I'll tell you a little testimony about how God used studying the Greek to correct my own theological error. And Diane and I spent five years in a Christian community because I didn't understand the range of meaning of this one word. So one of the points I want to make today is that it pays to study. And don't believe the people who tell you that if you get technical and study the languages, study the context, study the range of meaning, and do those things, it'll somehow cause you to dry up. You, you won't be a vital Christian. You'll be kind of just a head case of intellectualism and not very practical. Nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is more powerful, more practical, more applicable than what the Scripture really means. And so I found this study helps me a lot in my Christian life. And it is devotion. I've heard people also say, well, you got to have two different things, the intellectual study 
and then you go do something else for devotion. False. <laughs> they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God and prayer and so on. And nothing has been more productive devotionally for me than understanding what God said. It's powerful, and it will change your life. Now, here's one where we need to do some work. Do not love the world. If we think very long about this, we're going to come up with an apparent dilemma. Because it says in John 3:16 that God so loved the world, cosmos, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But here we have a command to not love the world. So we got to do a little work. We got to understand the text. How is it that in one sense, the world is to be loved, and in another sense, we do not love the world? How do we understand that? I want to help you do that today. I hope you come away from this sermon knowing the solution to that apparent dilemma. But let me start right here. The sinful cosmos hates God and his people. And we see that in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Let me read that. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So we know right from within the Gospel of John that there's a distinction. But it's the same Greek word, cosmos. So there's a range of meaning. And in some sense, the world hates us. The world's alienated from God. The world hates Jesus. But in another sense, God does love the world and sent his son. The things of the world that we're not to love are described in verse 16, which we'll get to momentarily. And I'm thinking of believers, us, in this sinful world while being commanded not to love it. And I think of Jesus' prayer, John 17, 15 through 17. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, dear ones, we are in this hostile world that's against the things of God. It's not hard to believe that if you've been reading the paper or listening to the news. We see the hostility of the world against what's good, what's right, what's true, what's pure. The world is against all of that, and there's a war going on. And Jesus prayed for us that while we're still in this world, that God the Father would keep us from the evil one. Later in 1 John, we're going to read that if we're born of God, we don't continually sin, and the evil one does not touch us. 1 John 5, 18. So God has ordained, dear ones, that you and I would be in this world as witnesses to Christ, and that he would keep us from succumbing to all that's in the world. And so we're going to find out today about these temptations that are always drawing on us and dragging on us and enticing us and why we need to resist those and not live for the world, but to live for the will of God. And I believe that God's grace does that. How does he do it? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I'm totally convinced that the better we study and know and believe and obey the word of God, we are being sanctified by God's grace. So the things in the world we'll see in a bit in verse 16. Let's finish verse 15. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, we're going to have to understand how is it that God loves the world and how is it that we're not to and how do we put all this together? You see, the love of the world is a deep-seated motivation. It drives people. It determines what people will believe. It determines what they're willing to do. Sometimes this love of the world that people are caught up in drives them to do evil. Sometimes they do evil in the name of God, but they're still loving the world. In this sense, the world, again, the word cosmos, or you know, word cosmos, is used in the Greek. But here we're talking about this cosmos in its sinful rebellion against God and its alienation from God and its unwillingness to love God and to do his will. And see, once we know the love of God through the grace of God that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, immediately, it doesn't take long, in fact, it happens right away. You find out when you come to Christ that you're going to have a problem with the world. All of a sudden, your beliefs and what you know that you want God to do in your life is not being helped along by that world. If you're converted, your former friends may not be your friends anymore. They're motivated by the world. And they're wondering what's wrong with you. There's something strange about you. Why do you love God and this not go along with everything the world's doing? But we can't. But how is it that this can be changed? That we no longer love the wicked world and we love God? It says in 1 John 4 and verse 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 10. He first loved us. Propitiation means to avert God's wrath. We read about that in 1 John 1, 9. And we confess our sins. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He propitiates sin. We're no longer his enemies. And so we have to make sure that this love for the sinful world doesn't creep into our lives as Christians and poison our love for the Father. We do love the Father, and we must love the Father while rejecting love for the rebellious world system. And I believe that as God loves the world, we can love too in the sense of wanting to see redemption for lost people. The love that we express is grounded in John 3.16. We hate the rebellious evil world system that's trying to destroy our faith and take us away from God. But we have compassion that God would save people. We want more people to be rescued from the sinful world. Okay? And we believe in rescuing the perishing. But if we start loving the world, then we start getting motivated by the world. And the more we're motivated by the sinful world, the more we look like the world, and the more we have no message. We have no power because we're just like everybody in the world. And look at the scandals that have happened in our lifetimes of people who went out from us. We'll see that in verse 19 when we get to it, because they weren't really of us. They became motivated by the world. Our love for God, as I said, is a work of grace. Now, let's look at these three items. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And then we'll go on to the, that's the first part of the verse. 
I'm going to break this out a little bit. This was my seminar back in the 70s and 80s. Root problems. What were they? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Let me tell you what I did back then. I noticed that these three things were the temptations that Eve went through. Remember, she saw the forbidden fruit. It was delightful to the eyes, good for food, and desirable to make one wise. And then I noticed also that when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in these three areas. And there's different ways to say it. Pride, power, and possessions, for example. And so I used to go through that in some detail and gave examples throughout the scripture. I'm not sure. Here's what I don't know right now. Was John consciously thinking about those two things when he wrote this? Now, my hermeneutics is a little more developed now. Here's what I'll tell you I do think. These are the three categories that entice people. Jesus was tempted. I'll say this. Jesus succeeded where he failed. I think that's valid. I think that's a good reading. Jesus was tempted in every place that Eve was, and he resisted and succeeded. And I believe he's able to come to the aid to those who are tempted. He was tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. He can come to our aid. So that's just a little bit of the conference I did in 1979. Remember that year? Well, some of you do. Some of you weren't here yet, were you? I don't really apologize. There are some things that I believed and taught that I wouldn't do now, but that was actually a pretty good one. I think all here is comprehensive. This is what the world's all about. This is what the world offers us. This is how the world entices us. The world is saying, why waste your time being one of those people who are those people, Christians, right? Oh, you're one of those people. Have you heard that? Oh, yeah. And look at what we have. I'll do this later in this sermon in application. We're going to go to 1 Peter 4. They think it's strange that you're not like you used to be. But this is what the world has for us. Each one of these motivations in the Greek has a definite article. The lust. The lust, the boastful pride. The flesh, theologically here, is the whole person alienated from and separated from God. It's what we are going our own way. It doesn't just mean that we have a physical body, but that there's this motivation. The flesh is a motivation. And one of the things that always remains true is that the world is offering self-fulfillment now without God. The distinction is going to be whether we're going to live forever with God or get what we can out of this life. The world is telling us in no uncertain terms, you better get what you can now out of this life. Advertisement is based on that. Do it, get it, live it. You only got one life. You got to do all the wicked things you can think of. And other things, not everything is forbidden. So the person separated from God is living out this alienation. And one of the scholars that I read had, a, I thought, a great terminology. He called these three things the diabolical triad. Some words just need to be repeated. The diabolical triad. Dr. Yarborough said that. The word here, lust, epithumia, means strong desire. And things that are desirable, enticing, appealing that we would want to be motivated by. Now, in order for this to change, we need God to change our motivations. Think of the 
lust of the eyes here. To have eyes that see in a godly way requires spiritual regeneration. Here's a passage that I want to cite. You might want to reference this one in your notes. Deuteronomy 29, 3 and 4. I was mentioning this to Eric this morning. Eric, we love having you back. Thanks for teaching us in Sunday school. But notice Deuteronomy 29, 3 and 4. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders, yet to this day the Lord has not given you, excuse me, has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. They saw all the miracles. Adam's been talking about that, the wilderness wanderers, the, the miracles, the manna, what happened at the Red Sea, and yet they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They craved evil things, as the New Testament says. And so it was a lack of a work of grace. Moses said in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 29, the Lord hasn't given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. In Luke 10, 23, Luke 10, 23, turning to the disciples, he, Jesus said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. You see, God opens our spiritual eyes so that we can see what these lusts are, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We can see them from God's perspective. And rather than looking like what we really need, they start looking like a trap set by the evil one to ensnare us. Because the Israelites didn't have eyes to see, they craved evil things. God is, by his grace, giving us eyes to see. We need a biblical worldview. We need to see things from God's perspective. Jesus mentioned this in John 12 and verse 40. There's this judgment of hardening. It says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. That's from Isaiah 6. Maybe you want to jot this one down too. I'll read it to you. It's about this boastful private of life. The word boastful, alazunia. And it's mentioned, you can see it in the parables. Remember the parables? The guy, for instance, in Luke 12, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Take your ease and so on. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. There's that boasting, alazania. Verse 24, Jeremiah 9. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises said, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. What do we boast about? How rich we are, how powerful we are, how wise we are in a worldly sense, or do we boast that we know God? What defines your life? Is what defines your life and my life that we know God? that he's loved us and cared for us, that he's given us grace, that he's given us eyes to see. We need to do that and not boast through this boastful pride of life. Now, talking about the lust and the boasting, the second part of 1 John 2, 16, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So not from and but from is a strong 
contrast. As I say here on my slide, God is not the source of sin. These things that would draw us away from God, we don't want to blame God. Let not the one who's tempted say, I'm being tempted by God. James 1.13. It says in James 1.14, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. It says in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. So where is our motivation coming from? Do we love the world? Do we lust for the world? Are we prideful about what we have in the world? Or do we have wisdom that comes from above? And are we listening to God? The implication is that Christians should lay aside the sinful world and cling to the Father. The world is passing away and the lusts thereof. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Here's the decision that faces all of us. Are we going to live for the sinful world and its lusts to see what we can get out of it? Or are we going to live for the will of God? The sinful world is transitory. It won't last forever. And it's soon gone. The days pass by. As you get older, days just go by so fast. Birthdays just fly. The next thing you know, you're 65. <laughs> we were at a 65th birthday party the other night. And I happen to be that age. It just goes by. I've told people this for many, many decades. No one ever regrets that they did the will of God. You don't. The times that God graciously worked in our lives so we did his will, it's always good. It's always beneficial. But do we regret when we don't listen to God and we go our own way? Well, yeah, we get all kinds of regrets. God's will is revealed in Scripture. The Christian's goal is to honor God by living for him. That's the example that Jesus gave us, John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me, Jesus said. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And Jesus said in John 6, 38, he came down to do the will of him who sent him. There are many parables about this, like the rich man and Lazarus. These things that I'm preaching you, to you today are known by most every Christian. If you've heard any kind of Bible teaching, you know this is real basic and we know it to be true. The most salient question is, how does this happen in my life? How can it be that I will live for the will of God rather than for the lusts of the world? I promise you, I'm sad to have to tell you this, the lusts of the world are going to be around us till the day we die. Unless the rapture happens first, okay? They're always going to be pulling at us. But we don't have to live for them. I'm going to show you later that we can believe the promises of God. We can be sanctified by the word of God. See, basic things like this that I'm teaching you today, everybody's heard it. But hearing it and encouraging one another in it and discussing it and believing it has a sanctifying effect. Every time we hear this, we start thinking, yes, I understand. I can't lust for the things of the world. It'll make me bitter. People who live for the world get bitter if they don't get what they want or proud if they do. Look at what my hand did or 
I can't get what everybody else has. I'm either bitter or proud. But the one who does the will of God has no regrets. Nobody can steal our joy. Nobody can take it away from us. And if we don't get something somebody else does, why would we be bitter? We're not living for that anyhow. If I had it, it's only temporal, it's only temporary. And so these are basic teachings of Jesus and his apostles, and they're given to us so that we would learn. Three applications and implications. Understand the range of meaning for cosmos. Number two, we must be committed to God's will. Number three, we escape the world's lust by the promises of God. Now, I got a little story to tell you that goes along with this slide. When I was in Bible college in the early 1970s, my favorite teacher, Reverend Smith, said, there's this new theological dictionary that's published called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. You need to get it. It's a lot of books, it's very expensive, but you need it. It's going to help you understand the Greek New Testament. Well, I didn't have it right away because I didn't have any money. And I ended up joining a Christian community. And what I was trying to do, Diane and I uh, together, was to not live for the world, but live for God. And we thought the best way to do that is to get out of the world. Don't have a job. Don't have a bank account. Don't have an income. Live by faith together with other Christians. So we left the world, or did we? So from 1975 till 1980, some of you knew us back then. We lived in a Christian community and just survived that way. My teachers in Bible college warned about that, and they told me I was making bad decisions. And I remember exactly what they said, because they could see how I was thinking. Got to get out of the world and be a pure Christian. They said, Bob, learn the Greek and learn hermeneutics and stay in the Bible. Well, good. I think that's good advice. See, I'm going to go join a Christian community because I got to get out of the world. But if I would have spent more time learning the Greek and understanding what this word meant, it wouldn't have made any sense to me. Luther warned about this in his day because he commented on this command to not love the world. Here's what Luther said. He said, some understand the world to mean God's creatures themselves. As the Franciscan monks understand money and society. But they are in the air, says Luther, since every creature of God is good, and Christ himself used money and lived amid the society of men. Therefore, in this passage, the world is godlessness itself. A man's state of mind, deprived of the proper use of the creatures of God. This is true of those who don't understand the creatures of God in the right way, and do not pursue the right end, who use the things of the world for their own pleasure and glory. So back at the Reformation, Luther understood this, and he warned about monasticism. We joined a version of monasticism, found out over five years that the world followed us right in there. There were still debates and people wanting money and people being envious and all of the problems came with us. Changing your physical location like the early Anchorite monks who went out into the wilderness doesn't get rid of lust, doesn't get rid of temptation, doesn't get rid of pride. These things are dealt with by God's grace now. So, 
when I got out of there, I started to go back and follow the advice of my teachers that I had ignored before. I got Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. I looked up cosmos because I wanted to know how to resolve these things. And here's the result from that Theological Dictionary. There's three major uses of the word cosmos, our word cosmos. Number one, the universe, the sum of all created being. Luther was talking about that. Well, you can't leave that, right? We're in the world. We're part of the creation. World two, the abode of humanity, the theater of history, the inhabited world, the place of human affairs. Now, this was the one that I falsely thought I had to leave. But you really can't. As long as you're alive on this earth, you're interacting. You're part of history. You're part of the arena of human affairs. You're going to have to have food and clothing and transportation and everything everybody else does. And we thought somehow we could leave that and not be tempted by the world, just like the monks did. But you can't. You can't get out of it. It's part of the arena. See, this world, too, is the arena where we go with the gospel, when we go out into the world and preach the gospel, the arena of human affairs. Now, there's a third meaning that they called world three, fallen creation, the setting of salvation history, the human world that is hostile to God. Now, dear saints, John uses the term in all of these different ways, okay? John the Apostle, in the Gospel of John and in 1 John. To understand what he's teaching us, we need to understand the range of meaning. So when he says God loves the world, world too. The humans on the planet, theater of history, where God brings his plan of redemption. But when we're told not to love the world, and speaking of world three, fallen creation, and the world under the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now this has implications to world two, but we need to make the difference. Let me show you, if you want to jot this down, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Paul's advice. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul said, you'd have to leave the whole world to not be around people following its lusts. They're everywhere. Every job you get, every family you're a part of. There's going to be some people, even if it's extended family, they're living for the world. And you don't have to go out of the world. You don't have to be like the Anchorite monks who went to live in caves. In fact, that's a sin. You know why it's a sin? Because fellowship is a means of grace. Acts 2.42. And we need one another. We need one another. Other Christians need you. What gifts you have are to the benefit of the body of Christ. If you're in a cave, tell me, what good are you doing in the body of Christ? Can't, I don't hear anything. <laughs> if you're in a cave, who are you evangelizing? Nobody. So do you think living in a cave is a bad idea? You get it. So we need to understand the Greek 
range of meanings so that we don't get confused and join a Catholic convent. 1 Peter 4.2. Let me start reading with verse 1. It's not on the slide here. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the life of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Exactly what John said. Lusts are temporal, the will of God is eternal. How are we going to live? Are we going to live the way the world lives? Are we going to be motivated the way the world's motivated? Are we going to desire what the world desires? Or are we going to live for the will of God? This implies a radical change of purpose from sin and lust to God's will. There's a contrast. There's an either or. Not lust, but God's will. The world is trying to drag us into its clutches to destroy our faith, to ruin our families and our lives, to ruin everything that's important to us. And this temptation is relentless. Let me read some more Peter. If you want to turn to it, 1 Peter 4, we'll start with verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. The people around you think you're nuts. Is that true? Why are you living for God? Why do you hang around with those people? What a fool you must be to think that there's a God and he can be served. What a fool you must be to think you need forgiveness of sins. What a fool you must be to think that God has a moral law and actually cares about what we do. So we have to decide who and what are we going to live for. We're told in Romans 12 too, to not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, that's why I say scholarly study is devotional. And I think the church is deceived about that. I hear from people constantly who think that devotional use of the Bible doesn't have to follow any theological truths it doesn't have to be based on the meaning of the text. It doesn't have to be based on scholarly study. But devotional means what makes you feel good and gives you warm, tingly feelings or whatever. I don't, I'm not sure what they're looking for. That's constantly the case. So when I wrote that article that Mike was talking about, we're doing some radio about, I knew I'd get that argument. Well, you know, these devotional books don't have to be theologically sound. What? Think with me. Do you think lies and falsehoods make you closer to God? How can that be true when God cannot lie? He always speaks the truth. I think the confusion comes because there are liberal theologians who do a lot of study, but they don't believe. I told you the story about the pastor who said, well, I don't believe in studying the doctrine of Christ, like all those things, pre-existence and the hypostatic union. I don't need all of that. Well, why do you say that? Well, when, before we used to have creeds that said that, 
and I was dead when I recited them. And I said, so you were dead because you believed in the deity of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. The pastor said, oh, I didn't believe that. Okay, so what he was saying was I recited a creed I didn't believe. Unbelief kills us, not the knowledge of the truth. You don't need to depart from the truth to be devoted. It's unbelief that's our enemy. It's lusts that are in the world that want to draw us aside. The truth helps us. When I found out from that theological dictionary, the range of meaning of cosmos, and why I was wrong to try to leave the world, it was comforting. It helped my devotion. Otherwise, I may look back and think, oh, it's all a waste of time. It didn't work out. No, I wasn't thinking correctly. One last slide. 2 Peter 1.4. I got to leave you with good news here. You need it. I need it. Now, it says this. 2 Peter 1.4. By these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Jesus gave us precious promises. They're called magnificent. God promised that his Messiah would return for us. The pre-existent one who created the world out of nothing, who came into this world and was born of a virgin, who lived and talked, taught his disciples, who lived a sinless life, who predicted his own resurrection from the dead, who was raised on the third day bodily and ascended into heaven bodily and a promise he'd come back again as they saw him leave. The one whose truth we believe, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, has granted us precious promises. I get emails every week from people who want curses broken and demons cast out every week. And I love those people and I care about them. And I look at those people as my mission field. And I respond personally to every one of them. And I explain to every one of them who Jesus is, what he did. What's the truth? What does it mean to be converted? I cite to them Acts 26, 18 that we can be delivered from the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of God, to come under the authority of God. Colossians 1.13, I tell them about. 1 John 5.19, I tell them about. And I sell all these verses, and I say, here's what is true. If you believe in Jesus Christ, he doesn't just move one demon over here and get run of one, one curse over there. He takes you your whole person and he takes you and moves you out of Satan's domain realm of authority and puts you into the kingdom of his beloved son I tell some of them they, they say well aren't you going to cast this demon out here's what I've been saying lately I try to get better at using this evangelism tool I say let me explain you are thinking too small. What do you mean by that? You're thinking too small. You're thinking this curse or that demon. I'm telling you that he's going to take you from being cursed, Galatians 1.13, and make you blessed. Whether you even figure out why you were cursed, you were cursed because you were lost. It doesn't matter what everybody did. You're taken from being cursed to being blessed. Globally, think big. You're taken from being under the authority of Satan, whether you had a good situation or a bad one. You're taken out of that and put into the kingdom of his beloved son. Well, then what am I going to do about these problems? Uh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm wearing this one verse out. 
Hebrews 4.16. Here's the good news. Once you are removed from the domain of Satan and put into the kingdom of God, he, the Lord of glory, who gave you these magnificent promises, gives you access to the throne of grace. Continually, any time you want to go there, you have continual access to the king of glory who died for your sins and was raised and ascended to heaven. And what do you receive when you go to the throne of grace? Hebrews 4, 16. Grace to help, just in time. Mercy, you receive everything you need. Grace and mercy and help from God. So anytime any spirit or temptation or curse comes to view, immediately you go to the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord, that you forgave my sins and took me from the curse to the blessing. Lord, take this thing away from me. Like Paul, 2 Corinthians 12. I've been saying this over and over again. They either go silent or they get excited. If they go silent, they're off calling somebody else to cast out the demon. Why? Because they don't believe the promises of God. So sometimes they say this, believe the promises of God. Was that all you got to offer? <laughs> what? You want something better than the promises of God? You tell me what's better than the promises of God. Well, I don't know. This is the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Dear ones, if you're listening to me, and you don't know Christ. What he is saying is that all of this, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from God. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. The world's passing away. It leads nowhere but to hell. Repent and come to Christ and believe his promises. His blood washes away all your sins. You're blessed and not cursed. Based on the promises of God. And then let him deal with the details. The spirits, the curses, the people that hate you, the insults that are thrown your way, the difficulties of life. He has timely help. So I thank God for that. And I pray that this sinks in to all of our hearts. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy that you deliver us from all these things. May we live the rest of our lives for your will and not for the lusts of men. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.